I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Cult Talk with Aaron Martin, a conversation, not an investigation. Cult Talk is a podcast that explores the realities of cult life, how they operate, who joins them, why people stay, and how some members eventually find their way out. Season one of Cult Talk will focus on a little-known cult called the Kobu, which stands for the Church of Bible Understanding, led by Stuart Trail. In this episode, I talked to Dave Pattison, who has just published a graphic novel called The Cult, A True Story which chronicles his time in Kobu. He talks to me about what led him into Kobu, how he got out, and of course, the similarities that we've heard from so many other ex-cult members about the questioning he did of himself while in the group and of course, after the group. He also talks about how the idea for his graphic novel, The Cult, came about and what he hopes to do with it. He has some great suggestions for people who are trying to get out of an oppressive group And in this two-part interview, he really goes deep on how Stuart manipulated him and others and how he's made peace with that today. Here's part one of my two-part interview with author and ex-Kobu member, Dave Pattison. Well, I'm here with Dave Pattison, and I want to welcome him to the show. This is the first time we've talked, and I'm very excited because he is not only an ex-member of Kobu, as are a lot of my guests, but he has just published a graphic novel called The Cult, A True Story that chronicles his time in Kobu. So Dave, welcome to the show. Welcome. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks. It's so good to talk to you. I was looking at your book. I was looking at the synopsis you wrote, and I want to really get into this. And I'm going to link it all up in the show notes too, where people can get this. But you were telling me just in our in our discussion before we started recording, this actually was released the day after Stuart Trail died. Yes, the timing was uncanny. Can you believe that? I mean, that's just wild. Yeah, I have a hard time believing it. It's yeah. Well, there's <laughs> signs can be there for a reason. So tell me just mm-hmm. to just to kind of get us going. Tell me a little bit about your experience in Kobu. I mean, that's what we're all talking about. Was it? It was when you were very young. I take it. Yeah, I was 18 and just graduating from high school. Um, <clears throat> I was certain that I was going to fail my senior year. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was I was really into religions and world religions and learning about everything. But I was kind of, I was really lost. One day I was skipping school, which was not unusual. And um, I ran into Larry. Um, I, I don't know. Do you use names or? Sure. Um, sure. You can use first names. OK, good. I ran into Larry and he stopped me. He was at a bus stop and I was um, actually I was on a bicycle and I was riding down. I 
for some reason I stopped the bike close to where he was and he came over with a with a tract and stopped me and I thought, who is this guy coming towards me? He looks really kind of rough. <laughs> now and, can you uh, just where where in the country was this? Where were you living at the time? Um, I was in Falls Church, Virginia. Okay, got it. Um, which is a suburb of, of DC. Okay. And that was back in '79, and we, uh, the Kobu had houses um, in Springfield and several, you know, several satellite houses around DC. There, yeah. So Larry um, cornered me there and um, insisted on talking to me. He would not let me go. <laughs> Part of and, the training. Oh yeah. Oh, he had me, and uh, <laughs> oh my God, he turned my world around actually because my very first impulse was, "Is this guy in a cult?" That was my very first thought. Was it really? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thought, well, I can always run away from him if you know if it gets to be, you know, if he tries to pressure me or something. I've got a bike. And then I started to swallow this the hook more and more because um he'd opened up his Bible. He was just going from verse to verse in um John, Gospel of John, and it just like, wow, you know, it's like um a light hit me. You know, it was a sunny day, and I remember the sun was shining down on us. And um, all of those verses just rang true for me at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I thought, well, damn, this must be the real thing. So then he, he asked me if I would pray with him. And I said, sure, I'll pray with you. And I w- we did the sinner's prayer. Um, I forget the details of the sinner's prayer, but basically I am a sinner and uh, let Jesus into my life and all of that. And um, immediately after that, I, I felt kind of, lifted or freer. Yeah. And then Larry insisted on getting my phone number. In fact, his bus came and Larry waved the bus away because he wasn't going to leave till he got my number. Oh, wow. So you knew yeah. he was, he, you knew he meant business. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't give it to him. Um, the more he tried the you know, the more stubborn I became and the more he tried, the more I started thinking cult, cult, cult. Uh, so no, nope, I went my way and he went his way. I guess several months passed. I, I kind of fell into my old habits um, of, of smoking, and I was I was smoking a lot of pot back then. Sure. And um, just really bad habits, and I um, started to become more and more depressed, and I, I sort of fell back into the hole I was in before I met Larry. Now, were you living at home with your parents at the time? I would assume yes, because um, you were around that I, age. Actually, I had moved to Virginia Beach with my brother, Gary. Oh, okay. And I uh, got a job on the beach there. and um, But I was really just kind of miserable there. Um, you know, we would go to bars and things, and I would get drunk. And being young, I didn't know how to handle my liquor and <laughs> just drank too much and more and more lost. And eventually, I just called Larry up because I still had his track and got together with him and started going to um, the Bible studies that they had over in Springfield. I think it was in... No, it was in Arlington. They had a house in Arlington at that time. And was Stuart and, running those meetings or who was uh, who was uh, kind of leading that? Uh, that was the beauty of it is that Stuart was nowhere around. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, it felt really good. Um, I went to the house and all the uh, brothers and sisters were there and they greeted me and they were just so friendly. And, um, and we got into a meaningful Bible study, me and Larry did. And uh, as you know, what they call nuggets, you know, he gave me a nugget 
And I just remember um, thinking this feels really good, like a real family. And this feels like a real um, like these people practice what they preach, you know, right. like, they're, like they're walking right? the walk. Yeah, they're walking the walk. And, you know, I know Stuart like to he liked the term church Christians, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> you or, know, or lukewarm the, Christians or well, yeah. anyone that wasn't in his cult was a lukewarm Christian. Right. right. Yeah. But it felt really good. And so. And it felt like family. I just really, I was in at that point. I mean, I'd swallowed the hook and, and I was with them. Now, when you look back, because this seems like a theme that comes up over and over again. Um, and I, even with my mom and dad, they would both say that this is true for them. There was something kind of like what you're describing, a feeling of being lost or just having a hole that needs to be filled it's like it's like the kobu could only get you if you had a need and they were saying that they could fill it with this you know it it seems like that's a common theme that i hear from all of the people who tell their stories yeah and i think it's a common theme amongst all teenagers is that i, think I totally agree yeah lost and is searching and if somebody comes along with the answer then you know they're ready to jump on which is why teenagers can be so vulnerable to movements like this. Yeah, yeah. I was 18 at the time. Yeah. Vulnerable. So then did you just start going full bore into the group or did you did you live in eventually? You know, how what was yeah. the trajectory of your participation after that? Uh, I moved right right in. Mm, okay. Uh, about a week later, they had a spot open at, on Montana Avenue in, in Washington D.C., and I moved right in. I um I remember taking a bunch of stuff over to the group home. It was like I had too much stuff, and I thought I didn't have hardly anything. <laughs> yeah. You didn't know just how how lowly they were living, though. <laughs> yeah, like you know, basically all you ha- have there is a toothbrush and change of clothes and a you know a milk crate. <laughs> right. That's about it. That's about it. Um, but I, I did bring a guitar uh, that my brother had given me. And um, so there were some people in the house that could play it. One guy from Jamaica, his name was um, Andrew. He he played really well. And we sang and a lot of singing, which was really wonderful. And I got to know, you know, a lot of new people. And it was just a very exciting time for me. This was all before um, I'd ever gone to a big meeting or, or met Stuart. Now, did you start hearing about Stuart? Did people talk about him? Or was he just not even a thought in people's heads, like out of sight, out of mind? No, people uh, people would mention Stuart and they would talk about him. Okay. Um, and, they, you know, he's our leader or our pastor. And some, somewhere I, I heard there's a rumor going around that that he had the spirit of Elijah, you know, some kind of like a mystical power or something special about him. Like he was a prophet and, or had some revelation. Yeah, like, like he was one of the old prophets that had come back to. Well, he, looked, he looked like one, but <laughs> that was about oh it. Oh, my maybe. God. Yeah. I mean, he. <laughs> He fits the role, you know. Yeah. The drawing that you have on the front of your graphic novel, did you illustrate that? Actually, I did, yeah. It really yeah. it really captures, you know, Stuart. <laughs> and when you say Elijah, yeah. an old prophet, I, I look at that that picture. It's yeah. really good. I like the utility belt. He always wore that utility belt. And those colored pens in his front. Yeah, all those colored yes. pens, man. Yep. Oh, my God. Every detail. I saw that and I was like, whoa, there it is. Yeah, it's like, every, you know, every god or everybody has their attribute. And Stuart's attribute for me was that utility belt and the colored pens. 
That's his power. That's his power. Exactly. His superpower. superpower. So when did you finally meet the man or did you? Uh, actually, I, I went to a meeting in Alexandria. Uh, it was a, a regional meeting, I suppose they called it. I, I, I spent all my time with Larry. Uh, Larry was great and loved that guy. I've always wanted to run, find him, but I never have been able to find him. But I don't think he's still in the group. But anyway, Larry set up this uh, place in Alexandria and I'd go, I went with Larry everywhere. So I helped him set it up. Uh, Stuart came. And the second I saw Stuart, I've never really met somebody that had that kind of charisma. He just um, had this power. I, I don't know what it was, but he had something that he could walk into a room, everybody would get quiet. Wow. And um, so I, w- I was like, uh, this guy seems like the real deal, you know? And um, so I kind of hung on every word he said. And I think too, at that age, I was really kind of um, looking for a hero or some kind of role model. And, you know, Stuart just came in and and fit the bill, you know. Now, did you have parents back home who had thoughts about this at all? Or did you have anyone who was reaching out and saying, hey, what are you doing? Or or was it just, you know, no big deal? Yeah, actually, um, um, my dad had been with me through throughout. And um, um, my brothers, um, my brother James had actually threatened to kill them. <laughs> wow. Okay. So there was a reaction. Yeah, James. James was totally um, like, uh, if you call here or come here, um, I will kill you. <laughs> so, and my brother Gary, actually, part of the reason I lived at Virginia Beach is because um, I, I was in contact with Larry for a while, and Gary knew that, and so Gary invited me to come live with him at Virginia Beach. Gary was going to Old Dominion University, and um, so he, I guess, his idea was that he would get me away from their influence. You know, were they calling it a cult to you? Or were they not using that word? I think uh, I think James was calling it a cult. Okay. Um, and I think Gary must have suspected cults were big in the late seventies. Oh, know? absolutely. Yeah, the Hare Krishnas and the Moonies, and, and then the Jim Jones thing. I think that was around that time too. It was. Yeah. So that was very much in the air. It was, and and but you were. Even though that was your first instinct, did you kind of back away from that thought as the as you got deeper into the group because it, you know, you liked the people or what was it about it that that took the, your fears of it being a cult initially away? Before meeting Stuart, I really had time to foster a relationship with the um, brothers and sisters in the group house. And I got to I just became really close with them. And I mean, they were great, but they were also totally smitten with Stuart and totally in line with him. And I suppose scared of him. And I just sort of accepted it. You know, I said, if these people are so cool, then, you know, Stuart must be doing something right. Did it start to take a turn quickly? Did yeah. you stay in there for a long time? Uh, no, I was in there for two years, Okay, which not, not a relatively short time, but it's it affected me for, I mean, almost a decade after leaving. Yeah, definitely. Um, Took a, took a turn. I mean, um, the the amount of control that Stewart had over everyone, and it's kind of like his tentacles went into everybody. And so all the brothers and sisters were kind of extensions of Stewart. Right. Everything that you did would go back to Stewart somehow. So almost I almost started to feel like um, like closed in. Like everyone, I don't know, you know, it's weird because I've, I fully trusted these brothers and sisters I was living with. And at the same time, they were 
they were, I think Stuart was leading the church into a very um, legalistic way. Right. And so everyone was like, uh, well, you can't have, you can't have, every time I, you know, you'd have a dirty thought, you'd have to come home and confess it. You know, um, there was a there was a kind of a, like an edict or something like uh, physical sin was a big thing. If, you know, if you masturbated, that was like crucifying Jesus all over again. Oh, my God. Know? And um, just things that I took for granted as being normal. I, you know, I had to learn that that's not approved by the church or not approved by Stuart. By Stuart. Right. Did you have a background yeah. in Christianity of another denomination or any religion? Yeah, I did. Actually, I was um, <laughs> my grandparents uh, would take me to an old country church. It was a um, hellfire and brimstone kind okay. of like Pentecostal. Yeah. yeah, Pentecostal church. And I got saved when I was like um, 12 or so. And it was just you know, and the emotion of the of a revival, and yeah, uh, yep. and so yeah, and I did that, and after that, you know, it's like nothing. And then the second time, of course, was with Larry and with Kobu. But you started to feel this, like everyone's eyes are on everyone else because of Stuart. You know, it's uh, yeah, and, um, it seems so oppressive. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. It was very oppressive. And a big thing was you would meet people like brothers on the street or something. The first thing they'd ask you is, how's your faith? <laughs> uh, and I don't know. Just I mean, a normal opener. Yeah. It's like, you know, people say, how you're doing? And I say, fine. You know, I don't always mean it, but, you know, you say fine. And so the, the brother would ask you, how's your faith? And I'd say, oh, uh, I'm good, you know. But then you feel like you have to say, oh, it's great, man. I'm really looking to Jesus and everything's 100% fantastic and praise God. And uh, I just thought it didn't feel right to me. And were they having you go out and witness? I mean, that's a big part of Kobu. Were you taking part in that, bringing new people in? Yeah, yeah. We went out nightly and okay. um, we had our $10 a week allowance. Were you working in the carpet cleaning business or the stores? I, I, start, I started out in the carpet cleaning business. Okay. Um, and I think for some reason it wasn't doing well at the time. And so I took a job as a deli cook and I took a lot of odd jobs at the time. I was a painter for a while and uh, I bring my paychecks and turn them in and they give me my $10. Right. <laughs> looking back on it, it's almost unbelievable. But what were your thoughts then? Like, well, this is fair because it's for room and board, even though I'm sure the room and board, if it was anything like 
my family experienced was not up to snuff. <laughs> mm, no, it was not up to snuff at all. Yeah, I didn't question it. I thought, yeah, they're feeding me every day. It's room and board. I don't have to worry about anything. And, you know, that combined with the biblical teaching that I was being fed, uh, you know, about giving up, um, casting all your cares to the wind and taking up your cross and following Jesus. And yeah, I, I just didn't, I thought I was being a good Christian. I thought the money was going to a good cause too. I mean, I, I knew about the Haiti orphanage and I assumed at the time that, that they were doing good work in Haiti. I learned later that the orphanage, that the orphans were living in deplorable conditions. Yeah. Tell me about what you've learned, because I have read articles here and there, but do you know mm. any specifics? I mean, they got, did they get shut down or did they get fined? Those orphanages yeah. uh, were very sketchy. Yeah, there's um, several citations from the Haitian government against the Kobu orphanage for being understaffed, um, having too many children. Mm -hmm. Uh, for inadequate nutrition and not providing proper medical care for, for the children. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I, I read an account from one of the sisters who'd gone over there. A child that she had, it was understaffed and she was overwhelmed. And there was a sick orphan who had to be taken to the hospital, but the hospital was going to needed money up front. And she tried to contact Stuart and Stuart couldn't be bothered for one reason or another. And so she took him to the hospital anyway and rang up a big bill. And then when she came back, she got pilloried by Stuart for running up a big bill and not getting approval for it. Wow. Yeah. And I think the child died, too. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's just deplorable, you know. And That's completely about, deplorable. Yeah. You know, a lot of that stuff, When if I'd known that when I was in the cult, then I, you know... I can't imagine that I would have stayed there. Were you getting clues to how Stuart lived so much differently than everyone who was a member of Kobu? I mean, was that becoming clear or did that only become clear afterwards? It only became clear afterwards. Yeah. Um, since, since I lived in D.C., I wasn't uh, in Philadelphia where he was, so I didn't see where he lived or anything. And my assumption was the way he dressed, his scraggly hair, um, his big belly. And I just assumed that he ate junk food and lived like the rest of us. Right. Yeah. He made it a point to really look like he was, you know, walking the walk, but he definitely was not. And at the time he had me fooled because I, I really thought he was. I love in your overview for your book, uh, The Cult, A True Story, you, uh, I'm just going to read this because I think people need to hear it. And everyone, again, the show notes will have a link to where you can buy this book by David. You mm -hmm. you have in it, I can only say that I stayed because I believed that I was serving God with all my heart and soul. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I didn't realize that the proceeds of my labor were going to support an overweight false messiah, belly floating in his personal swimming pool somewhere in Florida. Yeah. There you, there you have it. I don't know. Because in his yeah, later years, and it's, again, he passed away a day before your book was released, but in his later years, he was living in a mansion down in Florida with, you know, a few hangers on. And he was basically living off of the toil of years and years of slave labor. Yeah. I have to say that if there was a role for a cult leader, um, Stuart would be perfect for the part. <laughs> Why is that? He had, I mean, when you looked at the guy, you, uh, people were afraid to look at him because he, he would single them out, but he, I mean, he would look through you, you know, it was uncanny and 
Uh, just someone that has that much control and that much power is, is scary, you know. Do you think he had some kind of a sociopath tendencies or mental illness? I mean, what do you think was going on underneath all of this? I, I think he was very narcissistic, um, very self-centered. Yeah, sociopathic. Um, I don't know. I mean, define what you mean by sociopathic. Well, I just mean lacking in empathy. Uh, yeah, narcissism carries that trait too. You know, the world revolving mm -hmm. around you, it's other people's feelings don't matter. But with a sociopath, you really can't even relate to human emotions because you yourself don't function that way. And it just seems to me like he had a lot of cult leaders. If you study cults, have mm. all of those similar tendencies. But I, it's like, I don't know Stuart, except through the stories my parents have told and, you know, mm -hmm. others are telling. And I think more and more people will tell them now that he's passed away. And I just can't mm -hmm. put my finger on what kind of leader he was. It seems like he worked through shame and intimidation and public publicly calling people out. He also mm -hmm. seemed to create an environment of tattletaling or that people would call each other out on his behalf where he could just be the puppet master. I mean, was that true? Yeah, yeah that was very true. Um, he enjoyed um, um, shaming people publicly. Yeah. And he was really good at it. Uh, you know, he would have them stand up in a meeting. And he would use the pressure of all of the hundreds of people in that meeting focused on that one victim who's standing before him. And, you know, and he would just call them out and say, well, well, why, why are you shaking or why are you afraid? You know, fear is not of God. And then it, that's all he had to say. And then he didn't say anything. All the other brothers and sisters would start jumping on the right. on the or a victim. He was a master and he enjoyed it. I could, you could see it in his eyes that he was really taking pleasure in, in just um, publicly humiliating somebody. We'll pause here for now, but join us for the continuing story on the next episode of Cult Talk. Also, join the listener conversation over on the Cult Talk with Aaron Martin Facebook page. Follow at Cult Talk on Twitter and Instagram, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast from any platform and leave us a five-star rating and review in iTunes. Cult Talk is written and hosted by me, Aaron Martin, and produced by Dan McInerney. See the show notes attached to this episode for all links to resources and social media associated with Cult Talk. 